Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another Battleship... Nope. Welcome to another BP Movie Journal. I don't have time to say the whole name of the show. I know. We're in a big goddamn rush. <laughs> um, I'm in a goddamn hurry. That's yeah. uh, Jackie Gleason. That's right. Bandit. Uh, BP Movie Journal, the show where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. It's been a few weeks, and also we are pressed for time. So get ready for some real fucking superficial uh, movie discussion. Yeah. Sucked. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Boring. All right. Um... I don't know what you've you've seen here. Maybe we'll save some time. Well, here's here's what I'll say first. All right. It's been three weeks since we've done one of these. I should have way more movies than I do. I will say. Yeah, you have stuff for work. I made, due to some very tragic circumstances uh, regarding the school district where I work in uh, Santa Clarita, uh, some classes were canceled, which meant I had to move my final test and the final paper for three separate classes totaling 60 students all to the very last day. Which means I have to do a lot more grading than I anticipated. Yeah. So I had to do that. And then I also was doing some consulting work. So I've actually watched several movies sure. that I cannot talk about. So I just don't want anyone to judge me as harshly as I have clearly already judged myself. Yeah. No, I would, I always do the same thing. I always feel like I have to sp- yeah. spell it when I don't have uh, that many movies, but I have three weeks. I have five movies a week. That's, yeah. that's fine. It's I'd rather it be seven movies a week. Sure. That's my goal, but uh, I never quite reach it. Uh, so first one, I don't know if this is one that's on your list, um, but I did recommend it to you after I watched it. And that's Rupert Gould's Judy. No, not yet. In which uh, Renee Zellweger uh, wins an Oscar for uh, <laughs> playing Judy Garland. Yeah. Um, I'm being facetious. Um, the movie is actually quite good, which okay. surprised me in some sense. Not in the sense that Renee Zellweger is good. She is, and I've always liked her. Mm-hmm. Um, although I will never forget one of my low-key favorite lines from Chappelle's show. Okay. Do you remember when they do the parody of, what was that show called? Like, Wife, spa- wife swap or wife trading swap. spouses. Yeah, yeah. They were both, I can't remember which one they're specifically parroting, but they did one that's specifically like a black husband and like a, it was like trading spouses because like a black husband. Yeah. And black husband. And so he's the black husband who gets moved into the White House uh, and he's going through the, the like, us, we like the celebrity magazines that are like next to the toilet in their bathroom. Yeah. And he goes, who the fuck is Renee Zellweger? <laughs> uh, is, as much as I love Renee Zellweger, that's always what I think when I see her name. Who the fuck is Renee Zellweger? Uh, well, people are going to know her name now if they don't already, because she's, she's great as Judy Garland. And, uh, but the, so the reason I was, uh, skeptical is because the director Rupert Gould made uh, a movie that I thought was uh, pretty deplorable uh, a few years ago called True Story with uh, James Franco with James and Jonah Hill. Hill. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't care for that, so I was like, oh, what's this guy up to now? Uh, it turns out he's up to make it a good movie. The trailer uh, made it look very good and very like old time Hollywood, which I was really excited about. And I've realized that of course you can't sustain that tone throughout an entire movie. That's more of a trailer type thing, but it did get me much more interested in the movie than, than I was previously. Well, uh, cause it just seemed, it, it seemed very much like just a, a nice return for Renee Zellweger. And here's an Oscar for you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, but it's, it's very touching and emotional. Um, it has a good use of flashbacks, which could have been uh, corny. We'll talk just pretty soon about flashbacks that don't work quite as well. Um, 
to to her uh, to young Judy Garland making um, making uh, the Wizard of Oz and how how poorly she was treated by Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part. This is a weird comparison because the movies have very little in common except for the fact that they are 2019 biopics named after the first name of their subjects. Okay. But one of the things I found so disappointing about Harriet sure. is that it imposed this sort of bullshit genre structured story yeah. like this action chase suspense yeah. thriller story that it didn't need to. Though part of me, <laughs> just the 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 stupid part of me it's just like yeah that's kind of neat like a genre biopic <laughs> but not for Harriet Tubman <laughs> uh, yeah and I'm sure that I'm sure we could think of examples of genre biopic yeah. genre biopics but um, but yeah this one it uh, you know it has a a, a story of sorts about her um, taking this this sort of residency gig in in London and leaving her children with her uh, ex-husband and um, striking up a relationship with uh, um, a sort of producer type played by Finn Whitrock. Hmm. So there's like kind of a story, but really it's it's more internal. It's more uh, uh, emotional and psychological. And also, it has, I, I don't know, I, uh, people get kind of precious about like, because she does her own singing. Hmm. And she doesn't sound exactly like Judy Garland. Yeah. But she sounds pretty good. And to me... Yeah. It's, it doesn't, it didn't break my suspension of disbelief, but this is, I guess it's a, your mileage may vary type thing. It's sort of like when, um, uh, like my, uh, my wife disliked Jojo Rabbit for all the right reasons, Mm -hmm. but she also disliked Scarlett Johansson's accent, which is something that like, it never registers to me when someone's doing a bad accent. I don't really care that much. When uh, we get to the Irishman, I'll mention, uh, at least here's the deal. A bad accent I can live with if it's consistent. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah it's like, uh, what my dad used to say about umpires. It's like, I don't care if he's calling that clearly a ball, a strike, yeah. as long as he does it every time. Yes. That was my dad used to say about umpires and he was my little league coach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, Judy, it's really good. Renee Zellweger's really good. It's a uh, she's clearly the, the, the centerpiece mm-hmm. um, of, of the movie and the reason it exists. And I will not be mad when she wins her Oscar. Yeah. Next up, uh, a movie I was really looking forward to and did not disappoint. Although there are some critics who disagree with me, but uh, after the better part of a quarter century in the biz making music videos and TV episodes, the feature film directorial de- de- feature film directorial debut of Melina Mats- Matsukis Queen and Slim. Okay, yeah. I was really looking forward to it. It in some ways was not at all the movie that I expected. Um and in other ways it, it was uh, uh it was more it was more it was better than mm-hmm. I expected. It's um Do you know the premise? Slightly, yes. It's a, it's like a first date or something situation in which uh, the characters are harassed by a cop, I think. Yeah, it is very specifically a first date that is not going well. And okay. He's taking her home on her at her request when they get pulled over by a cop who um, there's not really any ambiguity. This cop is uh, singling them out because of their race. It's a white cop. Mm-hmm. Um uh, singling them out because of their race and is clearly willing to uh, use 
force when yeah. it is not called for. So things go sideways, as it were. And uh, Daniel Kaluuya's character, who's not named Slim, the character's not named Queen and Slim. Hmm. We uh, don't learn their names until very late in the movie. Oh, okay. So I will refer to them as Queen and Slim. So Slim uh, wrestles the gun from the cop and shoots him in self-defense and yeah. and kills the cop. And, and Queen, who is uh, a, a lawyer and much more of a uh, activist type, um, Daniel Kaluuya's sort of his character is um, much more. Uh, as long as I'm just going to keep my head down and take care of myself and my sure. family. He's a Christian as well. Oh, all right. Um, uh, but she's like, he's like, we have, we can explain what happened. We wait, wait for the cops, and she's like, no, we're already, we're already fucked by this happening. Yeah. We need to get in. So they go on the run. Um, now that part I knew what I didn't know is that this was not, this was a Bonnie, this is a Bonnie and Clyde type movie in which they become folk heroes. Uh, that's, that's what, what I heard. And that's, uh, that intrigues me. Yeah. It's, and it's, so the movie is kind of a, I'll compare it to, there are certain like the early, like Drake songs or a lot of songs by the weekend are like, or like that Miley Cyrus song, We Can't Stop. It's like, these are songs about partying and having a good time. Lana mm-hmm. Del Rey does this, too, a lot. Uh, these are songs about partying and having a good time, but they come across like funeral dirges. Like, hmm. it's like, it's like we stay up all night, and we're doing drugs, and we're having fun, but like they seem real sad about it. <laughs> like, real sad. And so Queen of Slim is kind of like a, uh, to use like a, a, a Atlanta hip hop reference that's probably over a decade old. It's like a chopped and screwed version of a Bonnie and Clyde type story. Okay. It's slowed down. It's really indulgent in a way that it, I do not mean that as a okay. pejorative. I really like that sort of thing. Um, it's a slow lush movie that sometimes I think maybe goes a little overboard. Like, cause the movie's like, close to like two hours and 20 minutes long. It's a long movie. Mm. And there are parts where I'm like, okay, you're, you maybe you are a little too indulgent no. uh, here, but, um, uh, for the most part, I really enjoyed its pulpy take on, uh, it's, it's pulpy. And yet it's also unabashedly political and making a statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it's not being a, dialectic like oh let's hear both sides of the story it's like right. no this is a statement movie the screenwriter lena waith um has described it as protest art um uh, it it's very clearly making a statement and yet it's not like it's not a polemic either it's not dry right it's not uh strident it's using drama and characterization no. and the trappings of sort of enjoyable exploitative genre movies with guns and sex and, um, comedy. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really funny stuff in it, uh, by the way, um, to, to make its case. And I don't think, um, I don't think you have to necessarily agree with its case to, mm-hmm. to, uh, appreciate the, the movie. I, I do tend to, uh, uh agree with it. Um, and it definitely gets a little more complex on the issue uh, than what I've described so far, but I don't want to give things things away. It has some uh, uh, fleas in it, uh, and he's real good. Uh, I didn't expect that, because the last thing I saw Flea in, I think, was uh, Boy Erased last year, and I hated oh, that movie. Sure. Um, so he's uh, he was a surprise, and he's really good here. The best, uh, outside of uh, of the, the leads, and I forget her name, she's a... 
um, newish uh, actress. So it's Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner Smith. But the the biggest standout for me is the great uh, Bokeem Woodbine. Sure. Uh, who plays Queen's Uncle Earl. And uh, <laughs> he has the biggest laugh line in the movie, which I can only partially say. Um, oh, sure. Uh, but uh, when they're finally, he's like helped them while they're on the run and they're finally going to take off. And like Queen says, thank you. And Slim says, thank you, Uncle, Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Earl. And Bokeem Woodbine goes, I ain't your uncle N-word. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a very funny line reading. And it's, um, so, it's always so interesting when you realize that like, if this movie had been made 15 years ago, Bokeem Woodbine would have played been slim. slim. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now he's the, yeah. the uh, Iraq war vet, potentially suffering PTSD mm. uh, uncle, uh, who's also the funniest character in the movie. All right. Uh, so that's two down. Next up for me is a movie I was really looking forward to, uh, partially because uh, I have it in two different categories in the fantasy award season this year. Uh, Fernando Moreas, the two popes, and um, I'm not feeling great about my picks for the award, fantasy awards, but I mostly enjoyed the movie. Um, I'm sorry. One second. Uh, okay. Looking at the credits for Queen and Slim, I see that one of the story by credits mm-hmm. is James Frey. Yeah. Who wrote A Million Little Pieces. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, because all this stuff really happened to him. <laughs> right. Yeah. In Queen and Slim. He's like, okay. Yeah, they reveal at the end that Slim's name is James Frey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. Okay. Right, I'm so sorry. The, uh, the, <clears throat> the two popes. Movie I was looking forward to because I like the cast, I like the premise as yeah. a lapped Catholic my, myself. I like the idea of uh, two popes just uh, hanging out, shooting the shit, cabin like um, gals. And that's the thing. <clears throat> Those parts are the best. You've got Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. Uh, we were talking on this week's episode, which hasn't aired yet, about um, Titus Welliver's Robert Duvall mm-hmm. impression and how like Robert Duvall has tics that we didn't necessarily notice. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins, is, it's really starting to... Uh, in, in Two Popes, he does the thing a lot where he sort of like says something and then takes a pause and goes, ha! Like almost like a like... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Like like he's laughing at his own joke or laughing at what he's about to say, but he doesn't actually think it's funny. Right. Anyway, he does it a lot in the movie and I was like, Oh, he's, he's done that in another movie. I can like imagine him in like Beowulf, like doing that. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, that's not the, the, the point. The point is that the, the stuff of them, I like the movie for the most part. It's very lively. I think Fernando Marius, uh, is, a uh, a, a director that can, is good at making things, um, imbuing things with, 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 with cinema. I was going to say I was surprised when I found out that he was the one that directed it, given how contained the film well, could have been. And here's the thing that surprised me even further, because I, yeah, I had the same feeling. Surprised me even further. The movie's based on a play, but there are a bunch of flashbacks to um, uh, Jonathan Price's character, the current uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, mm-hmm. to his earlier days uh, as a priest that weren't in the play, as mm-hmm. I understand it. They were added for the movie. And so you'd think those would be because they're like, you know, period and throwback and they're story based and they get outside the walls of the Pope's summer retreat that those would be the more filmic ones. But those are the more docudrama ones and the stuff of of the two popes walking through like 
gardens or the Sistine Chapel, which they mm-hmm. apparently recreated in a soundstage. Oh, wow. Uh, or walking through the, the Vatican and stuff. That stuff feels way more cinematic. There's a lot of great, like, use of... Uh, he, you know, when they're in the gardens, the sounds of like the insects chirping, you can, if you pay attention, get, you don't even actually, actually have to pay attention at some point. At one point it becomes very, uh, very clear that he's like making, he's making the insects louder for tension, hmm. you know, in, in the conversation. Like Benedict makes a joke and it's just crickets. Uh, well, they're, they're, cause their initial, <laughs> that's funny. Their initial, uh, meeting is not very pleasant because the, the premise of the movie, and this is true in real life, is that Pope Benedict rep- represented sort of the last vestiges of a very, I would say, backwards-looking but very traditionalist mm-hmm. uh, uh, view of what the church should be and what, it, 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 in fact, even what God is. Mm-hmm. And Pope uh, Pope Francis um, represents a. a, a a younger way of thinking, a more, a way of thinking that's more, um, uh, geared toward the sort of masses of today, not just mm-hmm. the, uh, it's basically better at, uh, uh, at appealing to potential converts, sure. you know, that, that the old fashioned way of Pope Benedict is, uh, very pleasing to people who have always been in the church, but, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of not appealing to people from outside. Anyway, so, yeah, their first meeting is very tense, and that's where the insects uh, go up and down and in, on the volume. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I I liked it probably not as much as I was hoping to, mm-hmm. but I did like it. I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe I, I, my two categories in the fantasy awards. I have it an adapted screenplay, maybe something in in. In industry, not critics awards. Don't it's gotten care. a little bit of critics awards for screenplay. For, for I think critics. one, maybe okay. one. Um, but then I have Jonathan Price, who got nominated for a Golden Globe. I think. Yeah, but that's not. It's not going to happen anywhere else. I don't know. Uh, he didn't get nominated for a SAG award. No, he didn't. So the SAG awards are weird this year. Like I really, I'm surprised by the stuff that was omitted and the stuff that was included. Um, but yeah, best actor is just a really packed yeah. category this year. Yeah. All right. Uh, what did you watch? Did you say I did three. two puzzles? Or three? Oh, okay. So this is a film that that is uh, on your list as well. Oh, which is that's perfect because it's my next one. Sam Mendes, nineteen seventeen, Kismet. Yeah. That's what that is. <laughs> so uh, I wrote a review for this, um, and you wrote a review of this. Oh yes, yes. This pardon a, me. That's a personal pet peeve of right. mine. Uh, I apologize. Yes. And that is something that bothers me as well, oh, okay. but it's late at night. I'm not going to be uh, talking so good. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I wrote a review of the film and I remember, and I submitted it to Rotten Tomatoes. I gave it a fresh, uh, and then you said that you were surprised that I gave it a fresh because we had similar Because I read reactions your after I saw it. the movie and I was like, yep, I agree with everything he said. And then yeah. I looked at it rotten tomatoes. And I was like, Oh, he marked it fresh. I would have said essentially the same things you did yeah. and then marked it rotten. Yeah, I think. And that's the thing is ultimately I, I was, I found the film in many ways unsatisfying, but in other ways I still really appreciated what the film was doing. And so I do try to think in terms like, okay, did the film accomplish what I think the director wanted to? And I'd say for the most part, yes, certainly from a spectacle standpoint. And as far as like 
this is not something that I say very often. I try to stay away from it, but like this is a film that I think would probably be best experienced in the theater. Um, Mm -hmm. much like, and I say this in my review as well, that a lot of people, because of the story are probably going to be comparing it to saving private Ryan. I think it's a lot closer to gravity. Um, and that like, it's this, it's this big spectacle, uh, in which you have two people and then you have one person, that one person has to like try and figure out what he's going to do. Um, and there's just like one obstacle after another being put in front of him all with this virtuosic filmmaking. Um, and so I definitely, I liked the music. I liked the, obviously the cinematography, the sound design. I think George McKay does a great job in the lead role. Uh, it's, it's a hard type of role to play. The lead role is the, not the brother, the other, the taller one, right? the taller one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause apparently the guy who's the brother of the, the guy they're trying to get to was on game of Thrones when he was a boy. Yeah. That's and how he long was, game of Thrones has been on is that he's like, well, and he was also in, young. um, blinded by the light. He's the best friend oh, that we don't right. see very often. Yeah. Um, the one who likes pet shop boys. Yes. Wow. That's oh, yeah. Man. And so there's a lot of good there and I wouldn't, I'm reluctant to say the script is shallow. It just seems, it just doesn't, the script just doesn't totally work for me. Partially because I think either you do this one shot thing and be willing to tell a, a small story or you tell or you get rid of that conceit and tell a bigger story and incorporate all these different elements from more movies, but they want to try and do both. So like when the character slips off into like another room and, and into a room in like these ruins and sees this young woman like caring for a baby that isn't hers, it's a fine scene, but I feel like it doesn't belong in this movie. Mm. Like that's the kind of movie that you get from a saving private Ryan or a fury or something like that, that takes place over a long period of time. But here, like you can't do everything when you've got a ticking clock and one shot. So uh, it's, it's not totally satisfying, but it definitely is engaging from a technical and stylistic standpoint. So I gave it a fresh, but it's, I'm on the fence about it. Yeah. I mostly found the, what the single shot uh, conceit um, distracting. There are a few set pieces that really worked. There was one that I, the one part that I really loved was when the um, George McKay, his character is uh, running through that bombed out town Mm -hmm. and the Germans are shooting flares up in the air to light up the town to try and find him. Yeah. And, Sam Mendes makes a really good choice of never tilting up to show you the flare. Yeah. You just see George McKay and you see the town getting brighter and the shadows like stretching and elongating. And then the, as a, as the flare goes down, they fade and then the next one goes up yeah. and it's like, it's almost like it's, it's almost supernatural. It's like horrific intense. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite set piece in the movie. When they use the one shot thing to really put us to limit us, yeah. to what the to what the characters are experiencing i think that's when it's at its best when it decides to be a little bit more ambitious that's when i really notice it but there are other times when i don't notice at all um and i'm just so wrapped up in what the characters are doing and almost invariably it's when we're choosing to not see things yeah there's another uh, uh i won't go into too much detail but there's a part he goes uh to like a well to fill his helmet up with water. Yeah. And something happens behind him, but because of this conceit of the one camera yeah, uh, of the one take, we don't see it until he yeah. hears it and turns around. Then we see the sort of the aftermath of what happened. Yeah. Behind him. That's a really cool choice or a really cool utilization of the limitation. I also think there's one moment shortly after that. And it's, 
it, it's, it's a really nice payoff that I wasn't even totally aware of until it happened, which is a character dies and our lead is, is caring for him and then the, and the character dies and then our lead has to move on, which means the the camera moves on and slowly but surely like this body that we have uh, of a character we have an investment in is just left behind. Right. It's just gone. Like it literally is like, I have to move on. I can't stay. So like if, if this were shot in a, and cut in a traditional way, then like we would, it wouldn't feel so it wouldn't hurt so much to move away because you also realize there's no moving back. We can't cut to him glancing back. We have to just keep moving. And that, that to me when the camera forced us to move beyond where we would like to be, uh, that's when it worked at its best, mm. but it didn't always work that way. All right. Um, moving on to one of the, uh, surprises for me of the year, uh, positive or negative positive. Okay. Uh, this movie is incredible. It's a documentary. Uh, this, this has been a good year for documentaries. I think it's a documentary called midnight family. Have you heard about this documentary? Um, yes, I have. Someone was just t- telling me about it. It so, might have been you. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was. Um, but uh, so this is in, in Mexico City. There's a shortage of actual licensed ambulances from government hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people have essentially gone into business for themselves as like running private ambulances who just uh, they don't get calls from 911 or whatever. They listen to the police scanner and wait till they hear something that sounds like an accident and they try to get there, take care of the people, get them to a hospital, not necessarily the closest or best hospital, the mm-hmm. one that's friendly to them, yeah. uh, which might potentially be bad for the person who's dying in the back of their ambulance. Mm-hmm. And then once they get there, they have to ask the person or their family for the money for mm-hmm. the services uh, rendered. It's a, um, it's um, a cutthroat and often like morally questionable way to make a living, but it's also we also spend a lot of time. It's weird how much this movie is in some ways a companion piece to the movie I'm about to talk about next. Hmm. We also spend a lot of time with this family and realize how poor they are. The family that run the this one ambulance, we probably realize how poor they are, how much they're struggling, and it's like hard not like it's hard not to not sympathize at least not not judge them right you know for um uh for what could be seen as taking advantage of people because you realize how little power they have in the world to begin with that this is what's what's available to them um but uh the the movie the director's name is luke lorenson i think um is not uh, other than some text at the beginning that says there are 45, I think there are 9 million people who live in Mexico city and 45 official ambulances, which is not nearly enough. Uh, so there's people who, who, who do this outside of that little sort of setup. There's no narration or text Mm. or there's not really interviews. It's just like being with this family and it's one man, one man film crew. It's the, the director, I think he's got like lav mics on the four family members and he's got the camera. And so he's mobile and he's able to go with him. And the movie is so fleet and lean and it is a legitimate action movie at certain points. Because one of the things that happens because I listen to the police scanner is that they're in a big rush to get to the scene, not because they're in a rush to help people, but because they want to be the first of these private right. ambulances. And so there are legitimate 
chase like yeah. ambulance chase scenes where they're like there's one it, the 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 cameraman is filming the driver who's like the teenage son who's kind of be the lead he's standing in the street filming through the driver's side window um as the driver's like talking he's on the phone or something and then suddenly something comes on the police banner and the kid sits up and starts the car and the director with the camera has to run around the back and jump in the back of the ambulance before it takes off. Cause yeah. they're not going to wait for it. Of him. course not. Uh, and so he has to jump in. And then, so he's in the back with like the two younger brothers, um, uh, uh, trying to shoot through the front window is like, they're, they're catch trying to get past this other ambulance. And then like he turns the camera around and you, you don't necessarily know the camera, the car. So you don't know what happened. And then you see the ambulance that was in front of them slide into the, back behind them and the two younger brothers like yeah like they <laughs> celebrate that they're winning the and i almost like did that on my couch i was like yes uh the movie's so exciting and you know increasingly that's the kind of documentary that i like not necessarily the exciting kind but the kind where it's just like i appreciate interviews that's all well and good and i appreciate narration you know sometimes you need to contextualize things but i, I really like the idea of just in the moment yeah. and let us figure it out yeah, and that's what that's what Midnight Family is. Um, it's really great. I so, assume your next film is Parasite. Yes. Okay, you picked up. Yes, uh, uh, another movie about uh, poor people doing morally questionable things uh, no. um, because they are their way of life has not their way of life, but their lot in life has backed them up against no. the wall. Uh, yeah, Parasite. Um, I don't know. You've already uh, you've already seen it. You've already talked mm-hmm. about it on the movie journal. So yeah. it's been uh, a few weeks for for you um i wish i knew what to say uh, other than that uh i really enjoyed it i don't know i i don't have anything bad to say about it it's it's a I don't film think that I, yeah that's the thing i feel like on the spot because i don't think i love it as much as you do mm-hmm. but i don't have anything against it when did you see it uh i saw it uh the november 30th okay so it's, so you've seen it a, a pretty recently yeah what i'll say is that like when i first saw it i was much the same i was like that was really good i got nothing to say about it i was really engaged like it was just that and then as time has gone on it just not unlike a literal parasite it has implanted itself in me and grown uh to the point where it is like i've had like i i'm i've been rearranging my like my the order of my list of 2019 sure. movies and it just keeps moving up because I keep thinking about it more than maybe one or two other movies this year. And, uh, yeah. So I'd be curious. And, and a lot of the people that I know feel very much the same way. So like in three weeks, I'd be interested to, I wouldn't be surprised at all if you liked it more. Yeah. Maybe you just need, maybe everybody just needs more time to like digest what it's trying to do. Well, I think what I, uh, was, what I a thing I like about it is that it it has this conceit of here's the poor family and here's the rich family. Yeah. But really, when it comes to antagonism, it ends up pitting one poor family against another. Yes. And the rich family, they don't really do a lot that's objectionable because they're they live a life so yeah out of reach of the rest of this that they they don't even have to react to it. Yeah, and I'll say this, that, like, it would have been so easy, and also I feel like having seen something like Snowpiercer, I'm not surprised, I'm actually kind of surprised that Bong Joon-ho did not demonize the rich family. Um, 
and he, and frankly, even when, for example, when the father is uh, of the rich family is talking about like the smell mm-hmm. of the driver. Now you're meant to like for a moment you're you're just like like oh that snobbish guy looks down on everybody. It's like well number one, the driver never characterized himself as being poor, so like there's no expectation. So it's just like why does this guy from this good service smell like this? And also as someone who's driven Lyft as you have. Mm-hmm. It can suck when someone smells in your car and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then they leave and it's like, but they're not really gone, are they? Cause that smell is hanging out. So I guess I'm going to be driving with the windows down for a while. And it's not, it's not about judging the, the, the father with the rich or the poor father. It's just like, it's a moment where it's, it's more of a reminder that you're more with the poor family than the rich family. But the the fact of what he of what the rich father is saying is not inherently immoral it's maybe a little bit judgmental but he's also just kind of saying it mm-hmm. um that's the thing is i feel like it's it's a very humanitarian film that is also very funny and uh and is this weird mixture of genres like for a good while it feels like a heist movie like when they're getting everyone in place yeah and yeah. it's delightful and then there's that centerpiece which there was a part because there's that rainy night. Yeah. I don't want to go into too much detail. People yeah. haven't seen it. But that sequence goes on so long that a part of me was like, oh, maybe this is like a, a scream type situation. Yeah. Because if you, I don't know when the last time anyone who was listening saw a scream, you get to the house party like halfway through the movie and the second half of the movie is just that night. And so a part of me was like, maybe this is the rest of the movie. And that, I wouldn't, I would not, I would not have had a problem with that. I assumed it was, um, that's not, yeah, it ends up going uh, other places. Um, but, uh, it, yeah. So from, from that, you're talking about genre, uh, you're talking about the highest part, getting people in place and also the tension of the, mm-hmm. that, that rainy night, uh, uh, sequence is, um, that for all that the movie is talked about in terms of its, uh, um, relevance to 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 ongoing social issues. Bong Joon Ho is just a great like storyteller and genre uh, film director. Yes, um, I'll I don't know if he'll ever make something that I like as much as I love the host, but uh, uh, <laughs> this one's pretty great. Yeah. All right. Uh, I guess you're up again. Okay. So this is a, a rewatch. I watched it uh, with Jen, a film that I've seen many times, but it has been a long time since I last saw it. Um, and that is Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. From, the first one. From the first one. That's the one of the five. It's been the longest since I've seen the first one. And I, I never saw the fifth one. And then I haven't seen two and three in many, many years. Uh, when they first came out, really. Um, well, I, I can't remember how you feel. I don't know. I'm on the two and three are brilliant uh, uh, bandwagon. <laughs> Not bandwagon. The opposite of the bandwagon. Everybody else hates them, but I love them. There are aspects to three that I adore. There are a lot, there's a lot to two that I enjoy, but I also haven't seen them in a long time. But as a function of Disney Plus, I'm probably going to watch two and three again. Um, I have seen the uh, first let one. Let me ask you a question about Disney Plus. Okay. Is it, um, are they letterboxed full uh, original aspect ratio or are they cropped to 178? The, the Pirates movies? The Pirates movies. I don't actually remember. Oh, okay. Um, gosh, I, now I don't remember. Yeah, it's because I'm not watching 
those Gore Verbinski movies yeah, yeah. cop to one seven eight. Yeah. Keep it Disney. And they will. The original <laughs> they will. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> They're not giving it up anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've seen the first one many, many times. Uh, it's something that Jen and I went, you know, we saw it when we were dating. And so it, we bought it on DVD and watched it several times. Uh, and it got to the point, it, it, it does try. get to the point where like, you know what to expect. And the movie's not going to throw you any curveballs. but it's been, it has been long enough since I saw it that, uh, that there was a lot of stuff I really appreciated, which I'll get to in a moment. You had some a question here uh, again, like, like with our, well, actually this was on, sorry, we're recording out of order. So I'm yeah. referencing an episode that hasn't posted yet, but, uh, I keep like, I think of like a dumb thing and I'm like, Oh, I should, I should interrupt. Oh, I, I get in my voice. Well, oh, I should interrupt. I can't do the number of voice. I did. Um, I should interrupt Tyler's cogent point about the substance of the movie to tell a little fucking tidbit that no one but me cares about. But, uh, I care about things I did. I haven't seen, I said that it's been the longest. I did actually a few months ago, try to watch curse of the black pearl in an Airbnb. Cause Natalie and I went in air were went on vacation and then it unexpectedly snowed a sh- ton and we were kind of like snowed into the airbnb a little bit we couldn't do anything and so i was like oh they have the curse of the black pearl i opened up all that was in there was the special features disc i don't know if it was somewhere else in the airbnb or someone took it so you know we watched instead what's that so just a one-to-one you jump from pirates of the caribbean curse of the black pearl to under the tuscan sun uh which i'm glad i watched again i hadn't seen this since the the theater and i i I like that movie i missed that one (laughs) um but uh yeah so I re- I mean I still really enjoy it. I will say once you've seen it several times, if you watch it again, there's a lot of plot to that movie and there's a lot of back and forth of like oh like mm-hmm. shifts of power, which I understand you're dealing with pirates and like people that stab each other in the back and so there will be like twists like that. But the movie could probably stand to be about 15 to 20 minutes shorter. Like you could probably cut one of those shifts out and you still have the you still have the environment, you still have the performances. And it just, I also just really enjoy the spirit of it. It's just like a good old fashioned fun movie. Um, and I really enjoy obviously Johnny Depp, but Jeffrey Rush as well. Um, and yeah, it's, and it, it was enough to make me be like, you know what? I, I think I do rewatch, I do want to rewatch Dead Man's Chest and, um, at World's, at End? World's End. Yeah. Um, I keep thinking of the world's that's End. That's exactly, yeah. Um, so I do want to rewatch those, especially the second one, which I remember like really just ups the, it's just Gore Verbinski with a budget and he's completely unrestrained and it really enjoying the Davy Jones character and all that. So mm-hmm. I do want to, I do want to revisit that one, but uh, yeah, curse of the black pearl it, in my view, it really holds up. All right. Uh, next up for me, I watched a movie that is out this week in, in theaters um, and is really good. Talk about, I, I said back with uh, Queen and Slim mm-hmm. that you didn't have to agree with the movie to enjoy it. I loved Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell, even though I don't think I agree with its politics right. at all. Because it's... Um, well, I, you know what? I half agree with its politics. Right, because there's because two different... It's a movie that yeah. says, don't trust... You're foolish to trust our societal institutions, and if you do so, you will get what you have coming to you. Um, and... On the one hand, I think that's a, uh, I, I, I think that's a uh, overly broad and maybe irresponsible way to talk about journalism, which is one of the movies, or the media, which is one of the movies' no. uh, uh, targets. And on the other hand, I, I don't even know, like, at least Buster Keaton has an origin story, right, for not liking cops. 
Yes. I don't. I just don't trust. I don't know if it's like growing up watching a movie. I don't know if it's like I watched the wrong movies or something, but I inherently, I understand the necessity of a police force to enforce. Sure. The peace and laws and stuff like that. But I think I, I hope I'm not offending anyone who's listening who might be a cop or have a cop or have a family member in law enforcement, but I inherently am suspicious of the reasons that anyone would become a cop. <laughs> like, I just feel like I get it. I get it. Like they want to like and, when, and or any, any, anybody in a powerful, like in a position yeah. of power, whether it be a politician or otherwise, where it's like, you really think that you've got it figured out enough yeah. That you can work this all out. And the, the thing is, so the movie seems to agree with me on that because there's a great scene. So the, the movie starts, Richard, uh, it starts almost 10 years before the events that Richard James mm-hmm. uh, famous for. Um, when he's working as a, uh, as a sort of clerk in this, this government office and there's a, an attorney there played by Sam Rockwell who will eventually become Richard Jewell's attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they sort of have a little bit of a friendship and then Richard Jewell tells... Uh, Sam Rockwell's character, like, uh, that he's leaving this job to go, like, uh, work in, to go to the academy, or work in law enforcement, or something like that. And Sam Rockwell has the speech, like, uh, hey, when you get that, bi- that badge, don't turn into an asshole. And uh, Richard Jewell, I'm gonna just keep calling him by his full name the entire yeah, yeah. time. <laughs> Richard Jewell um, uh, is, uh, he's like, why would I? And then, in a very surprising move, the next scene we cut forward to like, he's already been a cop and been fired from being a cop. And now he's a campus security guard. And guess what? He's being an asshole yeah. and he's throwing his weight around. And it was a, uh, it was a movie I didn't, I didn't expect from a movie that at least marketing wise is about redeeming the good name of Richard Jewell, which mm-hmm. it does eventually. Sure. Um, uh, but it, I think it's much more interested in sticking it to the cops and the media, yeah, just the corrupting nature of authority. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and authority and sensationalism. Sure, uh, there's a part after after the bomb goes off where Olivia Wilde's character, um, she and another uh, Atlanta. Atlanta Journal Constitution is that the paper in Atlanta? Uh, uh, I think they just called AJC in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So I can't remember. Um, uh, she and another like they find each other and it's like oh good you're okay and then she literally prays out loud to God and you think like oh she's having this moment of uh, realizing what's really important in life but no she prays that when they find whoever did this he's interesting <laughs> um, so I feel like everything that I'm saying about the movie is making it seem really blunt and and un- unsubtle uh, there's actually a lot of great character work going on yeah. there's a a lot of comedy in the movie. Um, uh, your friend, a friend of more than one lesson, yeah. Paul Walter Hauser plays Richard Jewell. And we know from my Tanya and black Klansman yeah. that he's good at being funny. This character is remarkably similar to his Itanya character. Yeah. Both based on real people, both like sort of delusions of grandeur yeah. types. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, there, there's sort of a joke that even after he's becomes a, he becomes a suspect in the bombing. He's so eager to be seen as a member of law enforcement that yeah. he's like actively helping the FBI investigate him. And so like before they come to search his apartment, Sam Rockwell's like, whatever you do, let, he's like, let me do all the talking. I'm the lawyer while they're here. You don't say a word. And then as soon as in the door, 
he's just talking, offering to help, and Sam Rockwell's like doing the like <laughs> cut it out like yeah. uh, gesture. Um, you got John Hamm and Ian Gomez as the as the um, the FBI, uh, the FBI guys, the FBI guy. We're gonna need some new FBI guys, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, the movie, it, it's, uh, a, I, I like a movie that is much like Queen and Slim that is, uh, so forceful and passionate in, in, in saying what it wants to say and, do, yeah. but doing so within an entertaining package. Uh, even if, like I said, I don't necessarily agree yeah. with, uh, the movie's politics. Well, and me, even politics aside, I guess call it my uh, my wire instinct but yeah if there's any institution that exists be it the church schools <laughs> yeah. cops the press yeah they're all very open to uh corruption um yeah. by their very nature all right was that just my first one i on don't remember batch? yes yeah. okay next up is a documentary called the disappearance of my mother which is directed by well which is directed <laughs> Oh, he doesn't have a director. That's ben, weird. Benjamino Barisi, and it's about his his mother, um, uh, Benedetta Barzini, who I didn't know because I don't know uh, European supermodels from the '60s, but was a European supermodel uh, in the '60s who uh, has dedicated her life since being a briefly a supermodel to um, academia and feminism and activism and protest okay. and all these things, of, uh, basically being, uh, openly antagonistic toward the, the world in which she used to travel. <laughs> um, and, uh, she, she kind of, uh, uh, hates the world. So that the, she, she hates the world that she lives in. Um, she feels, guilty all the time because of her uh association with it and just being a human alive with carbon footprints and stuff like that she just feels guilty and so she talks about wanting to just disappear and she talks about it very seriously um and the documentary directed by her son uh is it's only ostensibly a movie about his mother it's really I can't, I'm going to say something that I say on multiple episodes, but every movie is a documentary of its own making type mm-hmm. of thing. It's really, I think, a movie about this guy wanting his mother to not go away and, in fact, to be more the mother that exists in his head. Mm. So even though it's a documentary, and I think he must have, he must be aware of this because he left it all in, but even though it's a documentary, he's constantly directing her. He's telling her, uh, okay, let's go get some shots of you walking through the here. And then like he, there's a part where he, she changes her, she goes outside and, and then comes back in and off camera changes her t-shirt. And then he like admonishes her like, no, that's bad for continuity. Mm-hmm. Now I have to, you have to change back or I have to include a shot of you changing your t-shirt so that it makes sense when I cut it together. Right. Like, he's overly directing what's supposed to be a documentary and she yells at him about it. It's a, uh, um, it's kind of a, it's funny, but it's also kind of, you feel bad for him, mm-hmm. um, that he's, you know, it's his mother and she wants to leave, you know, yeah. it's not personal, but she doesn't want to be around. Right. And, uh, and he's struggling with that. And so he essentially made a documentary about her, but really is a documentary about him. Oh, okay. Uh, next up is, Oh, <laughs> I watched, one of the worst films ever made. Oh, uh, a movie that is 
famous for being one of the worst films ever made 1962's ega oh yes yes um, which uh uh mystery science theater fans might know as a mystery science theater uh, uh episode it's a an independently made 1962 uh movie that is trying to sort of clearly cash in on some sort of you know teen movie craze you know crooner rock and roll crooner type craze uh it's this guy <laughs> directed it uh his name in real life is arch hall senior he's credited himself as nicholas merriweather i think mm-hmm. he directed it his son is in it um and he's in it as well his son doesn't play his son his son plays the boy wooing his daughter in the movie if yeah. that makes sense but anyway the daughter sees uh uh a, well what we call a caveman which she repeatedly refers to as a giant and by repeatedly i mean a dozen times a scene <laughs> that's like well, i remember <laughs> did she think she invented the word and was trying to get it to catch on speaking of my major science theater one of the things when we when we had frank Conno, frank kind has been on the show show proper just once yeah he was also on a couple of live episodes i think just, just one just one okay um we had Frank Conniff on the, the, the first time, uh, and he talked about picking the movies for MST3K. That was kind of his main, one of his main jobs there was uh, watching old movies and picking mm-hmm. the ones. And he talked about how f- the baseline of filmmaking know-how and sophistication has risen to the point where we will never get movies this bad anymore. Right. Um, and there's something almost <coughs> sad about that loss of innocence in yeah. a way. But one of the hallmarks of like, a bad, bad, just bad writing is this repetition of words. It really feels like a first draft. Like yeah. if I use the same word twice in one paragraph, I'm like, I better really have earned it. Yeah. Um, I was rereading an, an older review of mine from like years ago. And, and as I was reading it, I saw that I had accidentally used the same word in a paragraph. Yeah. There were like three sentences in between, but it really yeah. bothered me. Yeah. So he, it, she's just this giant, giant, giant over and over again. Um, and so her dad, again, this is the director mm. playing her dad, uh, decides to set out into the desert. This takes place uh, outside of Palm Springs, uh, of where cavemen live. Mm. Um, he decides the, to set the, out the hip ones. <laughs> decides to set out to try and find him. Uh, he ends up getting hurt, and get the, the caveman, played by Richard Keel, um, oh, of course, drags him into his cave. So then, the daughter and the boyfriend, again the director's son, mm-hmm. uh, go out to find him, finding a couple of opportunities for him to stop and play the guitar and and, and sing original songs yeah because clearly this is part of like the marketing thing was like oh i'm gonna this is a a a vehicle for my son and his uh songwriting and performing um (laughs) and so the songs are like really like horribly overdubbed it's just him and a guitar Mm -hmm. in the desert but somehow it's like an electric guitar and there are backing (laughs) vocals and like uh it doesn't make any sense um also there's the thing that happens twice. I feel like no one involved in the movie knew how to whistle <laughs> because there's one part where the song that he's lip syncing to that he's supposed to be playing in the desert has whistling in it. But the thing that he does with his face is not what you do when you're whistling. He's almost like, almost like he's, you like can he, whistle through your teeth. That is possible. But it almost feels like he's like, 
like he's just put chapstick on. He doesn't want to get any of his teeth, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's the face he makes. And then there's a part later where the dad and the daughter, like, uh, the cape man's there and, 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 and he's getting all, this is a plot is that there's a whole long section where they have to keep the caveman from getting too horny, essentially, and raping the daughter. Even though it never comes out and says that, that's like what the, that's what the fear is. And so he's like, so the the dad's like, who, by the way, never seems too concerned. Like he seems more put out that he has to like try and keep his daughter from getting, uh, raped by a caveman. Um, Kesarasara, you know what I mean? And he says, do something to distract him. Whistle. And she goes, la, la, la. <laughs> Again, not whistling. Um, it's a different time, David. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a host of other stuff that I, I, could, I could just list all the things that are so bad about this movie. Um, but this one lives up to the, the hype. You know, like, there's other stuff that's been put out on Blu-ray recently that were, like, MST3K. Mm. Uh, movies like the mole people which is like the mole people is bad but it's like kind of dull bad yeah. like ega is the real deal like this is so st- like i laughed so much it's so bad uh and uh the of course the mst3k episode is available as a special feature on nice. that Blu-ray. all right what's next for you incidentally one of my favorite this is actually i think there's a riff track yeah of course it is because it's for uh the phantom menace and it's one of the hardest it's the hardest I've laughed in a long time. Sometimes when the car- when when the you know commentators or whatever when they just come out and say something very plainly instead of like trying to be clever about it, it be- just out of exasperation it makes me laugh. And so there is one for the Phantom. There is one for the Phantom Menace. And there is a moment where Jar Jar Binks is, is talking. It's about it's about halfway through the film. So like we're tired of him by this point. And Mike Nelson just goes, look, go to hell. <laughs> like, that's, that's, and it's the look that gets it. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. Um, okay. So it's mine. Yep. All right. So next for me is a film I have not seen. A lot of people love it. Or I had not seen you, up until this point. Say, gonna, yeah. This is a risky. I'm just speculating. Yeah. Now. Um, <clears throat> And that is Adam McKay's Step Brothers, oh. which I saw for the first time, and it's fine. What? It, no, it's I, so funny. I laughed out loud at a few things. Um, there are other things that are just very. It, I appreciate it a lot. It's it, it's no it's no Anchorman, as uh, you and I said on uh, this week's Patreon. Um, That's right. But it it has that same kind of like wacky sensibility where they'll just go off on these insane flights of fancy showing that like, this is just a fantasy world that these characters live in. Um, so I do, I, I, res- I respond to it quite a bit. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but also as you know, I just, I have a hard time hanging out even in movies with oafish characters. Okay. And what's, what's interesting is that like, Ron Burgundy is himself oafish, but number one, he's good at what he does. He shows the, and then he's right. able to like, when he does finally get with uh, Christina Applegate, like he's good at that too. You know what I mean? Whereas these characters are just so they're man children, which I also have a hard time watching. Uh, but to me, 
I love Richard Jenkins exasperation <laughs> so much <laughs> just to watch. Cause he, when I think of Richard Jenkins, I think of a guy who, who is often quite stable and just to see him get more and more furious, uh, with them is quite amusing. And I, and I think Mary Steenburgen does a, a good job as well. And so, uh, yeah. so I, I do enjoy it. I, and I like the, the back and forth, um, between the two of them. I think that uh, obviously Will Ferrell and John C. Riley have tremendous chemistry. Um, but, uh, as a film, I, I, I laughed and uh, that was the point. Um, yeah. but it's, it, it certainly is not as memorable as something like, like Anchorman. All right. Mary Steenburgen and Will Ferrell, uh, low key like comedy duo, Elf. Oh yeah, Step Brothers. Sure. And very briefly, one scene in The Last Man on Earth. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> they just get it. They just get along those two. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Can, uh, there's a certain point at which it can't be a coincidence. Like, yeah. Like and they probably worked together on Elf. Yeah. They liked each other. Will Ferrell was like, "You should have her in this yeah. movie." stepbrothers and then she was on last minute she said hey we got this small role let's get my friend will as is all i'm writing fan fiction sure, of course like very just friendly not like slash fiction, i know will's like, down on his luck these days so maybe we could no, get i just want to write like fan fiction about will ferrell and mary steenburgen just being besties i want there to be a documentary about that yes <laughs> um i feel bad because i know that some people really love it and again i did laugh uh i just didn't it just hasn't really stayed with me like uh, i couldn't even really like right now i couldn't even really oh <laughs> okay i this okay their sleepwalking <laughs> is so hilarious to me because it's just of course them walking around because they don't have to be graceful at all they yeah. can just like pick something up and just drop it like a malfunctioning robot or something yeah and uh their sleepwalking scenes made me they're it's making me laugh now those made me laugh quite a bit i like when they put on tuxedos for, for job interviews um, i guess so i like i don't like adam scott the character i don't like his character yeah. as a person but he's yeah. very funny but he's like Dane Cook, pay per view, let's go. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then he, Rob Riggle, isn't it? That Rob was actually, Riggle. I think, the reason that that it came up a while back. Mm-hmm. I think first came up that you hadn't seen it. Yeah, is because I said. Um, Snapping necks and cashing checks. Yes. Which is what Rob Riggle says in the movie. And I do enjoy... Rob Riggle is if... Like, he... For whatever reason, he just... I laugh at everything he does. And so, like, the long scene where he just talks about how much he hates Will Ferrell's face, uh, I like that as well. So, yeah, it's... I I enjoyed it. Well, I also watched uh, a classic movie that I'd never seen. Um, this time I was, I correctly enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Unlike, unlike you, I just uh, said I laughed, uh, who, who, who watched the movie incorrectly. Uh, no, I, I, I saw it cause it's a new out on, Blu-ray. I didn't watch it looking in a mirror. Admittedly <laughs> new out on Blu-ray from criterion is 1950s all about Eve, which mm-hmm. I had somehow never seen, even though having heard of it, known it as considered one of the great American movies of all time and, mm-hmm. and heard it referenced like since I was a little kid, pretty much, uh, finally saw it. Have you seen it? Yes. Lives up to the hype. It's yeah. so great. Uh, also the title is ironic because Eve is the one character who is completely unknowable for yeah. the most part. Uh, we learn a lot about the other people that in the group of friends that she warms her way into, yeah. uh, but we can't really figure her out. Um, 
the movie is caustically funny. Yeah. From the and dryly intelligently funny. Mm-hmm. The opening scene <laughs> where like George Sanders is George is, Sanders na- is narrating the opening scene, which is like an award ceremony, like a theatrical award ceremony for acting on stage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and George Sanders narration is making fun of the guy who's giving the speech for being long winded, yeah. which is hilarious because he's taking every long route and cul-de-sac yeah. uh, verbally to get there himself. Uh, but would you begrudge him that he sounds so no, classy. Yeah, he's, he's great. The movie has so many great lines. There's obviously, you know, fashion, your seatbelts is going to be a bumpy night. Uh, there's the two that I had that I was familiar with. Fashion, your seatbelts is going to be a bumpy night. And then when she says about her husband, he's 32, he looks 32, he looked at five years ago. He'll look at in 20 years. I hate men. Yeah. That's the line I remembered. Uh, the one, uh, the one I didn't know that I, uh, that I loved is, uh, what Marilyn Monroe's character says about George Sanders character. Cause, uh, Eve is like, well, I couldn't have a conversation with him. He's so smart. Like, I'm, I'm afraid I'd bore him. And Marilyn man says, Oh honey, you wouldn't bore him. You wouldn't get a word in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I haven't seen the film in a while, but I do really love it. It is just so acidic. It's, yeah. it's one of like the, just the smartest scripts ever. Yeah. And some great, uh, drunk acting from Betty Davis. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, I, I really loved it. The one, one demerit for criterion's packaging. Hmm. So it has, it's a, uh, I don't know if I wish our friend Ryan Gallagher were here. He could tell us what the names are for the packaging. Thing. Sure. But it's like, it has a sleeve. Okay. Right. And so it's like a cardboard book, right? Right. It has two discs, but the, the part that holds the disc in place, the discs in place is this little sticky rubber thing. It's not like a plastic piece. Oh yeah. It's a little sticky rubber thing. And by sticky, I mean, it's way too sticky in that the booklet that's in it keeps sticking to it. So when I opened it, I tore the outside page of the booklet off the staples because I didn't realize it was, it keeps sticking to the inside of the, the oh, page. Yeah, that's a bad call. Or, or the inside of the, the cardboard. Uh, yeah, so Criterion, keep on so, putting out great movies. All about Eve, but, thumbs down. <laughs> yeah, get some new packaging. <laughs> Don't do that bullshit packaging. It's not good. Um, oh, next up is a movie you've seen. Okay. Uh, and you uh, either liked it or didn't like it, depending on uh, whom you ask uh, uh, among, our, among Rotten Tomatoes readers, and that's Toy Story 4. Indeed, yes. And, um, I think I liked it more than you did. I think I would, most people do. I would, uh, uh, firmly recommend it, but here's the thing. I agree with a certain part of your review that this is uh, after toy story one, two and three being really like really good movies. Yeah. And the third one and just ending on such yeah. an amazing note. Toy story four is like, Oh, that was a good time. And I feel like, at this point, they've broken through like where it's like, did we need a third one? Oh, I guess they did. They really said something with that. Yeah. Did we need a fourth one? Uh, probably not, but they made a good movie. At this point, if the word toy, if the term Toy Story is no longer sacred, mm. I say just keep cranking them out. I say just keep making Toy Story movies at this point. If this is like the sort of baseline of fun, yeah, I'll have, I'll have a fun time. I'll go see him. Yeah, you uh, could do worse. My, my review definitely... I do try to focus on the, the positives. Um, 
but I think, you know, and it's interesting because in many ways it's similar to 1917. Like in both cases, I point out what's good, but that I'm ultimately dissatisfied. I give 1917 a fresh, I give Toy Story for a rotten. And I think it's because a standard is, was set by previous films. You can't really help that. Um, right. right. And I feel like it just failed to live up to that really Uh, for no other reason. I mean, there are many other reasons, but if for no other reason than just because like, just the complete sidelining of like buzz and just like this oh, yeah. was, uh, I mean, most of mo- these original toys are barely. Uh, in. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they introduced a lot of new characters in three, but they still kept, it was still mostly Woody's story, but buzz had some stuff going as well. Whereas here they keep all those characters, sideline them, bring in more new characters, many of whom I enjoy, but after a while it just feels like it's, it felt like it's like, Oh, we're, wait, we're world building in the fourth movie like this, which is, yeah, I guess it was fun world building though. I like the idea of the, the, um, the toys who like live at the like public park and like live yeah. in the sandbox. That's fun. I like, uh, my favorite line in the movie, combat Carl is going to get played with. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, uh, did you but, like, uh, Duke, what is it? Duke, Duke Kaboom. I yeah. loved him. Of course. Um, uh, but I, I thought it was just going to be like, oh, it's funny that it's Ken Reeves or whatever. But no, the character himself is funny. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, what I was going to say, yeah, I think Buzz, you're giving Buzz Lightyear is in it more than you're giving credit for because he did have a really good running joke about, joke about listening to his inner voice that I think worked. Um, but really, I, it worked. I like, but it, it doesn't feel like it would work for the fourth film. Like it's like something that would be in the first film, like that so running joke. Is, you're like the Star Wars fans who don't like The Last Jedi because it doesn't jive with their idea of Star Wars. But just watch the movie. It's a good movie on its own. It's enjoyable, I suppose. And that's that's the problem is that, like, I, I on one hand, I get where the the those fans come from. Like when they say Luke Skywalker never would never act like this. And I kind of feel like I don't I can't imagine Woody acting this way. The difference is. There's a 35 year difference between the last time we saw Luke Skywalker and now, whereas Woody, it's been maybe a year or something like that. Yeah. And, and he has such a seismic shift in his philosophy, not to suggest that it can't evolve. It just feels like it completely undercuts what toy story has been about to this point to such an extent that I'm just like, okay, well, what is, what is it about now? And I can't really tell you. Um, but the other thing I, uh, I was going to say about, because um, Toy Story 3, a big part of it is just like a prison escape type yeah. movie. Yeah. And this one has a lot of those same type of plot mechanics. It's like, we got to get in the, we got to get a plan to get up to the thing, to rescue the thing and get yeah. out of the, and, and make an escape. Like that kind of stuff is, I think, uh, in, it, it's uh, common to all the Toy Story movies yeah. and uh, it's always fun. So I have no, uh, yeah, it's not up to the heights of the, trilogy as it existed but i have no real problems with it i had a fun time watching it okay all right just uh you're just one more of the crowd man yep uh speaking of fun no this was a movie was good eventually but it's not a fun movie and i can't remember if you've seen it or not ad astra i have seen Ad astra yes okay we did we talk about it on the podcast i mean i talked about it uh, on the movie i'm saying you would have had to um uh, oh yes, that's right. You were talking about uh, Tommy Lee Jones' performance. That's right. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that. Okay, um, I uh, really liked it eventually, and mm. I think that's kind of how it's a, how, as far as my interpretation of the movie, 
that kind of makes sense because the movie's just, I think, a two hour and whatever minute like therapy session for this mm-hmm. character. And so it's kind of not fun a lot of the time yeah, because he's doing the work. But then when you get to the release, uh, it's like, Oh, that was worth it. Like, I feel like I had yeah. a catharsis there. Something, uh, you know, really worked, uh, or, or, or something was came off my chest or whatever. Um, and there are things about that moment of release that I don't want to talk about because I don't want to spoil things. Yeah. But, uh, that I that I found really interesting, uh, visually uh, especially, and that's one thing that yeah, I can't uh, I, I can't have any. God, it's late and I'm losing my vocabulary. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't quarrel with the movie visually. It's yeah, mostly beautiful throughout. I was sometimes, probably intentionally, I was sometimes thrown by how violent it gets, how sudden as suddenly as it does. Like yeah. it's mostly this sort of like contemplative, very interior movie. There's like the guy it's Brad Pitt, like mostly sitting, you know, on his way to places and thinking mm-hmm. about things and there's yeah. voiceover. And then like someone's getting their fucking face blown off or whatever. Like it's yeah. like, it's, there are these things, that, there's these moments of violence that are really jarring. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of annihilation in that, in that regard. Okay. Yeah. But it isn't. It didn't have. I don't feel like it has the dread of annihilation, for me at least. Not not a literal dread. But the more I think about the movie, the more I realize, like as he gets closer to his goal, which in this case means a reunion with his father. I feel like there's a there's an emotional. On one hand, there's a, a deep sense of anticipation, but there's also this dread of like, what on earth? What on earth do you say in this situation? Yeah. Um, and I and I I love their scene their scenes together. I like how unhinged Tommy Lee Jones is and how effortlessly mean he can be simply by stating fact. And I love Brad Pitt's reaction to that. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So I, it's, it's a different. I really kind, it. yeah. It's not. I'm sorry, I cut you off. It's a different kind of dread uh, okay. than Annihilation. I agree with you. Um, but yeah, it's not always a pleasant movie to watch. Um, I mean, from the beginning, the, the, the opening sequence is, I mean, I guess it's like an, it's a thrilling sequence. Really. It's more of a nause, <coughs> nauseous. Sure. Yeah. I never know when to say nauseous, when to say nauseating. Uh, and then, okay, what's, uh, you should have two more. Yes. So one now, and okay. then one in a bit. Um, okay. So this is a movie I rewatched after many years. And what's interesting is when I first saw, monster house i wa- so i i there was 2006 i saw it in the theater really loved it really responded to it uh, and i had seen it once or twice since then um but it's been probably 10 years since i saw it um so i watched it with my uh after school students you know who it, we can we're limited in the movies that we can watch uh but i watched it with them and then i saw under writing i saw that it was co-written by dan Harmon. Ah. And I didn't know that. And Rob Schraub. Um, and I was like, so I thought, oh, interesting. I wonder, having being familiar with Community and uh, Rick and Morty, I wonder uh, if I'll be able to see any of his hallmarks in here. Turns out I saw all of his hallmarks. <laughs> and I say that in the best possible way. Uh, because one thing that Dan Harmon is really interested in is the concept of aging and trying to figure out where you are right now. And 
Monster House is very much about kids who are on the precipice of puberty, which is to say moving into adulthood, but still have these childlike instincts um, and, and a childlike thought process. And so it's really interesting to see them try to figure out, well, what am I? Am I an adult? Am I a kid? Do I still want to be a kid or do I want to be a, an adult? And the film ultimately arrives at like, be a kid while you can because you're not going to be one very long. And that's so interesting because that's 2006. And then in 2015, like, or, or it was uh, 14 or 15. But in one of the last seasons of Community, you have the character of Jeff Winger played by uh, Joel McHale, who's in good shape. He's a good looking guy. And he's constantly obsessed with getting older and being afraid that he's going to get that he's going to age out of relevance. I know Mm -hmm. that's a thing that you are are often worried about. Um, And so there are, there are episodes devoted to him wishing he were still young only to be only to realize that no, there's some good things about adulthood. So it's almost like, so you look at that with monster house and it's this idea. It's like, if you're a kid, be okay with being a kid. If you're an adult, treasure the fact that you're an adult, especially an adult at this particular moment in time. And so, uh, it was really interesting. And, and that's to say nothing of the, the visuals and just like the, the real energy of monster house. Like, uh, some of the character design looks pretty rudimentary these days, but the design of the house itself and then the, for lack of a better term, the camera work and the visuals and the music, it just, it, it has such a different type of energy than other animated movies at the time. And, uh, and I really responded to it on, on a number of levels. I, I loved it at the time, but I, I, I have an even deeper appreciation for it now. Uh, all right. Next up, uh, for me, 1951's Olivia, uh, a French film directed by Jacqueline Audrey, uh, apparently one of the few female workers, female directors working in France at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the story of an all girls sort of boarding school, finishing school type of place. And a new student named Olivia who, uh, quickly becomes everyone's favorite, including the favorite of the two headmistresses, Miss Julie and Miss Carrie, Miss Kara. And what Olivia re- soon learns is that the, the, student body or whatever you want to call them uh, at, at this school um, have kind of split themselves into factions the Julists and the Carists they each like sort of pledge fealty to one of the two hmm. uh, headmistresses and the headmistresses here's some, and here's something that would have been maybe if this were an American movie in 1951 would have been more uh, subtly hinted at but it becomes pretty clear that Miss Julie and Miss Kara are in love with one another. Um, uh, except that Miss Kara is, uh, jealous of, of Miss Julie and, and the students, because there are students that she likes like Olivia. And one we hear about who was there before named Laura, uh, who have pledged to Miss Julie. And so Miss Kara has this chip on her shoulder. Miss Kara is played by, uh, Simone Simone from, uh, cat people. Oh, okay. Which uh, I actually have never seen the original cat people. Uh, you, you dig it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard good things about the remake. I've never well. seen the remake. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, Olivia's presence in the school and, and her fealty to miss Julie, despite the fact that miss Kara has feelings for this young woman, um, stir up a whole bunch of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically just moment to moment, this is, uh, a, a, it's, a 
it's a it's a it's a melodrama and it's a a good one a deeply felt one and a sort of classically shot one and it ends up edging more into straight up tragedy which some melodramas do but uh i i found it really uh fascinating for some of the more not that it's like explicit in the sense that it's like graphic more it's more explicitly about lesbians than uh the same story where it being told in Hollywood in 1951. Sure. Um, uh, but I don't think it's quite, I wouldn't say exploitative. I think maybe it does come a little uh, uncomfortably close to the stereotype of the predatory older lesbian, which is sure. something you see in, in old movies uh, uh, and probably newer ones too, uh, a lot. Um, I mean, Carol, like the character of Carol is, I wouldn't say predatory, but that word did pop into mind yeah that's a good point uh, um, but uh, of course even that movie is made in an older style yeah, as well yeah um, yeah and uh, the only other um, the, the other conceit of the movie that I uh, found really interesting is unless I'm misremembering there are no male speaking parts until the end when the actions that take place at the school end up having to be invested, investigated by authority and authorities come to no. find out what's going on. And in that, in those scenes, when the men are there in the school, we never see their faces. The shot is of them interrogating Miss hmm. Julie and the shit, the cameras behind them. So we see them like they're sort of demanding of her and yelling at her, but no. the camera never shows uh, their faces. So there are, Almost, there are only three men in the movie, four if you count the dog. Um, it's, a, it's a cute dog. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but we never see their faces. Anyway, uh, so that's Olivia. The next two I'm just going to probably zoom through because I didn't uh, care much for either one of them. A uh, documentary called Cunningham about the uh, uh, docu- the, the choreographer, Merce uh, Cunningham. Um, I saw footage from the documentary. It looks really good. Yeah, that alone would be good it okay. does a really cool thing very simple i didn't see it in 3d i saw a screener um uh but it's uh, it's showing in 3d in certain places um and that would probably be cool because uh, it reminded me of inventors pina which is a very similar mm-hmm. thing also a documentary about a choreographer that is shot in 3d and that uses new like sort of restagings of their choreography uh in, in 3d that stuff's amazing like i love watching I love just watching the dances. Uh, and it feels like based on, there's no new interviews, which is something that Vin Vendor's Pina did have, but there's no new interviews. The whole uh, story or history of it is constructed through uh, archival footage and old interviews, but there's too much of it. And there's too much going on. Mm. There's like too much of the like chintzy documentary thing of like, you know, old photos sort of sliding into the screen, you know, from, uh, <laughs> from above or, or, or off to the side or whatever. Um, it, it, it feels too flashy in that sense. If like, uh, if you had just done a document, I mean, honestly, the, if it were just the dance sequence, the new dance sequences, I don't know that that would have been an informative documentary, but it would have been really cool. Mm-hmm. Everything else feels like, window dressing and it feels like something that Merce Cunningham wouldn't have wanted done to his work uh, anyway um, mm-hmm. and then finally a movie that I was really looking forward to um, that I found uh, wanting yeah very, uh, unfortunately very disappointing is James Mangold's Ford V Ferrari oh okay 
Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, when they're, it reminds me of, uh, and I can't remember his name, Gavin something who made a warrior and miracle. Isn't that Gavin? It is. It's not Gavin hood. No, it's not Gavin hood. He no, did, uh, X-Men origins, Wolverine and yeah. Sucksy. Yeah. Um, Gosh, now I don't remember. He also made the very bad rendition. I don't know if you ever saw rendition. No, uh, um, I that was bad. Uh, I heard it just now, actually. Anyway, uh, reminded me of Warrior, where like Warriors. I don't even care about MMA, but the MMA sequences in Warrior are awesome. Mm-hmm. Anytime it's not an MMA sequence, I'm like, get back to the fighting. I like the Gavin O'Connor. Gavin O'Connor, and that's what I. That's kind of how I felt about Ford v Ferrari. I like when they're racing around, or like when they're driving fast. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but. Uh, most of what's in between seems very incurious kind of superficial and and dumb there's uh here's a line of dialogue that i swear is actually said in the movie i swear i didn't dream dream this is uh, at the very beginning there's a guy a representative from some motor racing team this is before ford gets involved and he's talking to carol shelby that's mm-hmm. uh matt damon's character and matt damon's character is saying you should this driver, Ken Miles, Christian Bale's character, that's who you should hire or whatever, but Ken Miles is a uh, loose cannon. Yeah. Uh, he's very volatile. Uh, he's like cussing and throwing wrenches around and stuff like that. And the guys are like, hmm, I don't know about this guy. But then they see a race and he like wins the race. And it literally cuts- He drives like super fast. Yeah, he drives super fast. <laughs> um, like so fast. Um, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it cuts back to the guy that was just talking about Damon. And he literally goes, he's difficult, but good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I laughed, uh, at, at the movie at that point. Um, and, uh, but a couple of other things I, uh, I'll, I'll mention one thing I really liked. One thing I really didn't like. Okay. Uh, Tracy Letts plays Hort, uh, Henry Ford Jr. He's great. Of course. Even is. though it's not a great character, he's great. He's just, and, he's a, he's an interest. He's just a, an, an interesting actor. Uh, yeah. And he has a scene where Matt Damon takes him for a ride in the new, like GT Shelby. They, mm-hmm. uh, they invented that is, it's one thing to write this scene. It's another thing for Tracy Letts to do it. Uh, I don't want to go yeah. into his reaction to this fast car, but it's, great it's like the best scene in the movie. Yeah. outside of the driving it's the best scene in the movie what i don't like and it's not really his fault because this is an actor i have liked in the past josh lucas's character who is he's playing the character i know you've talked about the warden in shawshank redemption mm-hmm. i think of john hurt in awakenings the guy who's like why does he hate our protagonist so much yeah is it just everybody because, in patch adams yeah he's just like yeah like you're talking about the, the, the idea of a character who knows they're in a movie and that they have a role to play. And it's like, yeah. they, I mean, they, they have a scene where Christian Bale pisses him off the first time he meets him, but it's like, was it, he really hates him that much. Like it's, is he won over? Uh, uh, no, he's a bad guy. Oh, okay. He's just a full on bad guy. Okay. Uh, yeah. He's a full on bad guy. Um, uh, I really find like any time, honestly, anytime Josh Lucas was on the screen, I was just, tapping my feet and waiting for the next race sequence and it's not really josh lucas's fault it's just a really dumb character yeah i don't i don't understand the need for in movies like this where it's like you know you're not telling just a traditional good and evil story right you don't need a villain like they're they're already working against adversity and odds and stuff like that that can be fine i know that there's a tendency to want to like humanize that so that we have like a person to root against but at the same time like you don't we're not children you don't have to do that 
We understand concepts. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's la- it. I'm all done. Last one. one more. Yeah, I do. All right. Uh oh. So listeners who, who, those who listened to my interview with, uh, Hawk Koch, uh, which was a great deal of fun. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, check it out. Um, he and I discussed the Irishman, which I had seen and did not really like that much. There was a lot of stuff I liked about it. But historically, I am not a huge fan of Martin Scorsese's gangster movies. Okay. And so just the the film just didn't really work for me Have on a lot of levels. Goodfellas? It's really good. Wait, w- which one is that? <laughs> That's the one before Casino. That's the one like I'll make him an offer he can't uh, get away from or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's pre- I've heard it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> it says top of the world, Ma. <laughs> exactly. You shove like a grapefruit in like yeah. uh, Ray Liotta's face. Yeah. Um, okay. That's enough of that. Um, <clears throat> Mother of mercy. <laughs> Why am I funny? Um, anyway. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's late. Yeah, no, that was worth it. That was, that was worth stopping for. It's late, everybody. Um, okay. Uh, oh, so anyway. Uh. So Hawk also did not really care for the film. So we were talking about it and he, he asked me if it's a movie I think I would ever return to. And I said, and in my mind, I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And I thought, you know what? I might give it another chance. So many people that I trust really like it that I might give it another chance. When I said that, I was not anticipating watching the entire thing in its entirety. The entire thing in its entirety. It's late. Yeah. Uh, the next day. So I've seen the Irishman twice in like a week. Mm-hmm. That is a huge time commitment. Yeah. Time. Okay. Arguably could have been better spent watching several movies that I haven't seen, but going into it the second time, knowing what to expect, knowing what it was helped me a lot. And now I wouldn't say I love the movie, but I definitely appreciate it a lot more because I think the first time, by the time we got to the, the, the last 40 minutes or so, um, by the time we get there, I think the first time I was just, I was so kind of burned out on the movie because it just wasn't giving me what I wanted it to, that I just had kind of checked out. Now those last 40 minutes are like my favorite thing. Um, because that is, uh, cause Hawk and I were talking about like, what does the Irishman do that Scorsese, 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 pardon me, hasn't done before. And the answer is that last 40 minutes. And so I do think that that's the stuff where you see, like you see the characters die of old age, you know, you see characters get sent off to prison or whatever it is. Um, and you start to see them wonder, what, what have I been doing? And maybe not full on regret it, but at least have a moment to think about it. Like there's this wonderful moment. Uh, and it's so fascinating because again, none of this really impacted me the first time. Uh, again, I just, I think maybe I was just in the wrong headspace, but this time there's a scene where like these two FBI agents or whatever they are, are FBI guys, we need a couple more of them. Uh, and they show up and they're talking to old Robert De Niro and he's like, he goes, talk to my attorney. And they're like, your attorney's dead. Everybody's dead. (laughs) And there's a humor there, but there's also a sadness there. And it does make you wonder. It's like, yeah, what are you clinging to? Like when, when literally you can't incriminate anybody because they are all dead, uh, is 
that is that's what this movie brings that Scorsese has not really done with his mob movies before. Um, up until that, I think DiCaprio. Uh, I think De Niro is doing f- fine work. I love what Joe Pesci is doing. I like a lot of what Al Pacino is doing, but I like what he's doing emotionally. And I don't, I, I did not require him to do a Jimmy Hoffa impression, but at first he does. And then just stops one day. Hmm. Um, like, like there's a very specific kind of like, it's kind of Chicago sort of thing. Well, it's more, um, cause he's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. What? So it's like, but the, is he from Philadelphia? I forget. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. But like, but I thought he was, but Hoffa had a very specific way of speaking. Nicholson in the movie Hoffa does it all the way through. I did not require Al Pacino to do it, but he starts it. And if you're going to start it, just do it the whole time. Or, you know, it, it it really bothered me that he didn't like, it took me out of it. Um, and so, uh, but I still like what Indiana initially, Indiana. Okay. Um, but yeah. And so, so his performance emotionally, I like what he was doing, but just like the, the mechanics of it didn't really get me. Also, I had a hard time. Even the second time around, I had a hard time buying the relationship between Hoffa and Frank, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah, Frank Sherman. Um, it, not so much buying it, but like for a movie as long as it is, they don't really lay any of the ground for, groundwork for how these guys got so close. We see them working together at first, and then we see them close, and I didn't see any of the connective tissue. And it's like, it seems like getting to know a na- a national figure and then getting to know him as a friend so much so that when things go the way they go, of course it's going to have to have an impact on us. And it feels like they did, actually didn't put the work in, hmm. um, for that. But for the most part, I'm, I'm glad I watched it again because it just, I was able to just see it as the complete work that it was. Um, because the first time I, I unfortunately had to watch it in like, three chunks. And I think that makes a difference. Mm. Um, and this time I saw it as like one complete work that I responded to a lot towards the end. And I was able to appreciate a lot of the stuff leading up to it, knowing where it was going to go. Um, so yeah, I liked it definitely more the second time. I'm not as over the moon about it as a lot of other people. 